Good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you had a great day uh, and a great week. Um, it is the weekend and time to relax, my friends. Um, and I'm very, very honored that you have come back to my uh, podcast. Um, I have... On this last series of the Mughals, um, I want to talk about the Zamindari system. We know it started with the with the Islamic invasions of India, the Jagidari system, the Jagirs, then the then um, the Zamindari system. It discontinued into the British rule, but it is important to understand what this dreaded system was to understand uh, how it how it it came. It destroyed the country, and and then uh, by the time the British came, there was nothing left. And we've only talked about the British, the British, the British, but we haven't talked about what was the situation before they came. We we told systematically that there we were the most perfect people on the planet um and uh yeah we were 33 percent of the gdp without giving us a breakdown of what happened so i'm going to talk about this uh zamindari system um again we will take excerpts from the book of irfan habib the aggregate system of mughal india and just to give you hints of what it was and and i would hope that you would go and and uh, not only buy the book but do your research yourself because it's very very important have that conversation with your friends your family and ask them to have a conversation with at least five people so you can understand the currents that form our waves atwa all that lies in between so the zamindars uh the zamindars is a modern indian usage which means in modern Indian usage, means landlord. That's all it is. Zameen means land. Dar means of the land. Okay, so the landlord, the the land of the the lords of the land, basically. Um, it's a Persian word, a compounded word, literally meaning controller or holder of the zameen or land. It it originated the use originated in india um the world the word being practically unknown in persia um in india however it occurs quite early early as early as the 14th century uh dictionary uses it as a synonym of marzaban especially an overseer of a territory okay um um, of a territory, yep. It appears as a designation of a holder of a ikta, uh, or controller of a territory, zabit i zamin. Um, basically, um, in in 1353, Firz Shah speaks of zamindars as compromising of headmen, that's mukadam, government appointed landholders. Marfuzian and landowners Malikan. So that word zamindar still continue to be applied in the Mughal period to chiefs in general uh, is beyond dispute, but it was not by any means confined to such use. That means it was not only uh, um, one size fits all. It was uh, it could mean a lot of things. Include was a um, an umbrella term for serfdom and different aspects of it, different formats of it um, existed on this Indian subcontinent. 
in different provinces. Uh, there's no easy way of refuting an exclusive identification with vassal chiefs than by showing that Zamindar, so-called, existed everywhere in the states. It happens that the evidence of the Aini Agbari is alone sufficient to establish this fact. Uh, the testimony of the Ain is backed by extensive documentary evidence in the form of sale deeds, official papers, and other records of the 16th and 17th centuries. Here also we come across Zamindari rights in almost all parts of Mughal Empire, in the provinces of Agra, Delhi, Lahore, Ajmer, Imperial Territories, and especially Awad, modern-day Uttar Pradesh, uh, not to speak of the more distant provinces of Bengal, Bihar, and Gujarat. It may be said that the, that with assurance that that wherever the surviving records are extensively surveyed, the existence of zamindars is bound to be detected. A Persian word used as a synonym for zamindar, quite often by Abu Ifazal and occasion, occasionally by other writers, is bumi. Okay, uh, bumi is also land. Uh, it literally meaning from boom, land, uh, is the same as that of Zamindar, and it too does not have to see, it too does not seem to have been used in any technical sense in Persia. While the two Persian terms in time gained currency, Zamindar became the standard official term. There still survived the local, uh, local names which were considered to represent the same right as Zamindari. Um, they were Satarahi and Biswi or Bisi in Avad, and Bumia is said to have been a real counterpart of the Zamindar in Rajasthan. The literal sense, uh, the literal sense of the first of these three terms is one seventeenth, while the second means one twentieth. Neither of which senses, for the moment, bring us bring us much uh, um, enlightenment. The third word goes back. Uh, to the same Indo-Aryan root as the Persian word Bumi and means the same thing. Um, in the latter part of the 17th century, we come across a new set of terms in practically all of the country, Taluka and Talukdar, as substitutes in certain cases for Zamindari and Zamindar. The exact significance uh, can be debated or discussed later. At present, it's enough to say that they are derived from the word taluk, which simply means connection, and these terms too, therefore, do not bear the real meaning of the um, on their face. The synonym for zamindar used often was malik. In some documents, the zamindar is alternatively termed as malik. In the 17th century documents, two 17th century documents, malikiyat, uh, that means the right of the malik, and zamindari are used indifferently for the same right. And in a large number of documents, we find mili Milkiat and Zamindari coupled together as names of a single right. Now, while the significance of the other synonym is obscure, Malik is an Arabic term which has its own distinct sense in, in Muslim law, namely uh, that of proprietor. Milkiat is therefore what in English could be termed as private property. It is, however, one thing to say that the Zamindari was a form of Milkiat, and quite another to assume that all rights designated uh, Milkiat were Zamindari rights. 
as property as a property right zamindari had the first place especially uh, rural and aggregate associations this seems to be one element in the definition of the word zamindar um, basically um, so that is an introduction to the word itself again uh, i'm just explaining excerpts from a book um, and the reason being that this system was a dreaded serfdom system of Europe. It's, it existed on the Indian subcontinent. We call it uh, by different terms. But this all came to an end and suffocated the Indian peasantry who formed the bulk of the population on the Indian subcontinent. And when peoples are suffocated, they're made into serfs, into slaves. And one time they're going to revolt. And that formed the base of the British East India Company, which came along to trade. And that's why the British East India Company was so successful in, in trading with people and, and gaining trading rights and finding a market on the Indian subcontinent. So we'll go into that a little later. But um, I, we've already talked about it, but I'm just giving you my opinion on what the Zamindari system was and how it came about and what it basically meant. Just the gist, okay? Um, the association of Zamindari with village, uh, with the village, um, rather than the field, is born out of the manner in which the size of the area held under the Zamindari rights is specified in the documents of the period. A Zamindari is nearly always said to compromise of a village. Uh, or a certain fraction of it, par fractional part of it, seldom so many bigas or definite units of area. The word biswa, which is sometimes employed in stating the area of Zamindari, does not mean in this context the actual unit of the area of the name, equal to the 20, 120th of the biga, but represents a 20th century, 20th part of the village. Zamindari was therefore a right which belonged to a rural class other than standing above the peasantry. Um, before we inquire into the actual relationship between the peasantry and, this, and the Zamindari class, it is important to note that the sway of the Zamindars did not necessarily extend over the entire countryside. On the other hand, there seems to be a large number of villages where no Zamindari right existed and which therefore were known as um, Rayati okay or peasant hell as distinct from villages of the zamindar so different types of of administrator administrations existed once one where there were zamindars um and one where there were no zamindars the division between raiti and zamindari villages was well established if not equally well marked throughout the empire an administrative manual written in delhi province divides the land of a village into um Zamindari, self-cultivated land of the Zamindars, and the Rayati. Another written in Ilhabad province similarly classifies villages of a Pargana as Taluka and or um, Taluka and uh, Rayati. So you see that there are differences or divisions in a village. Um, 
So the British regime in this region, Plains of the present Uttar Pradesh, inherited the division. In the early 20th century, the officials spoke of the village zamindars who held at least four-fifths of the villages, while remainder were, hel- were held by big zamindar and chiefs. But the village zamindars themselves belonged to the two classes. Um, the, the superior non-peasant right holders, or zamindar proper, and others who were simply peasants. The latter were known to local officials not as zamindars, but as raikot or assami. Um, riot, uh, riot in, in, in Persian, assami, A-S-A-M-I, terms which were applied as well to cultivators of the lands of others. These in various villages acknowledge no superiors, um, though they might have bodies of subordinate cultivators under them, such as uh, paikshat. So we see the different types of zamindars. Uh, there were divisions in villages for the zamindars system. Uh, not all of them had zamindars. Some of them did not. Uh, yet the evidence is not extensive or unqualified enough to prove that the zamindars everywhere, without exception, possessed the right to dispose of land cultivated by peasants. They might not, indeed, in many cases, have even been seeking it. Okay. Um, so, which claims, um, their claims advanced above and beyond those uh, on the produce of the fields, it's not surprising that the zamindars could consider themselves entitled to levy a number of miscellaneous uh, charges. Okay. Um, so, such as uh, jalkar and the bankar, or levies on water and forest produce, mentioned among the apportenses uh, in a sale deed in 1578 or 1618 from Bihar, and in the, in the sale deed of Calcutta Zamindari. From, uh, from Rapri, that's the Agra Suba, comes the complaint that zamindars of a township were collecting a house tax, Kana Shumari. According to another complaint made earlier in the same region, uh, reign of Aranzib, zamindars of a village in Pargana, Haryana, levied a poll tax on men, tax on turbans, besides taxes on marriages and births. Okay. The zamindars also claimed the right to levy a tax of the craft uh, professions called Mutarifa, which is documented for Bihar and Bengal. In addition to collection in, in kind and money, the zamindars would also lay to certain services. Um, in the 17th century Marvar, for example, the Bumia uh, could apparently demand a plough from each house for a day or for use in his field. The menial caste were particularly subjected to forced and largely unpaid, rendering the labor a beggar. Um, Balhars, Tories, Danuks, Chamars in northern India had to act as guides and porters for the zamindars and also apparently for all men of zamindar class uh, who happened to pass through their locality. Well, that, in my, in my opinion, and in modern terms, is called a money-making racket. But hey, it was the beautiful system of the Mughal Raj and the Delhi Sultanate uh, and, and above, beyond. The Zamindar's income from these varied sources rested on his property, propriety right. Uh, his haq e 
milkyat. So long as they enjoyed an, his original right, it was from him to collect these dues. But if he was not to be divested on his authority by the administration, then he became entitled to some recom recompense for his lost income. This was called malikana. An 18th century glossary of revenue terms compiled by an official familiar with the practice of both Delhi and Bengal tells us this, that malikana is a right, a haq, of the zamindar when the authorities convert the zamindar's land into sir, impose direct assessment and collection of revenue from the peasantry. They give him, the zamindar, an account of, him, of his being the malik, something out of every hundred bigas or every hundred man or grain, of grain. It reiterates elsewhere that this was given only when zamindar's land was or had been made sir, sir. When he, him, he was himself the revenue payer, he would not get any malikana, but only nankar, that's an allowance for service. Malikana was therefore allowed only when the state directly assessed and collected land revenue by passing the zamindar. The normal rate of malikanas is defined as in the same glossary as 10% of the total revenue collected. This was true of the cases where it was granted to the zamindars as an annual allowance in cash. Um, to sum up, there existed almost throughout the Mughal Empire fiscal claims of the zamindars upon land lying within the zamindari uh, system, the claims being met either through um, levies on peasants and other others or through the holding of a portion of land revenue or through cash allowance out of the revenue collected from the entire land by the authorities. In the last two forms, it was known by names of Malikana and Do Bisri in northern India and Bengal and Bant or Vant in Gujarat and Chaut in the Deccan. This represented a large part of the income of the zamindar um, obtained out of his property right. There was another source of income too, and this arose out of his position as a servant of the state, a cog in the machinery of revenue collection. To measure the magnitude of the zamindar's income from such varied evidence as we have, the best way seems to be to compare it with the size of land revenue. A more precise way to, re to re relate the zamindar's total income to land revenue would be by assuming that the malikana at 10% of the revenue, 25% in Gujarat, to represent the minimum revenue uh, level of the zamindar's income from his property, um, pro um, proprietary claims. To this must be added the nankar, 5 or 10% that he received um, from the revenue authorities, that's the central, uh, um, from, from the imperial uh, state. In all, then this income should not have been less than 15 to 20% of the revenue in northern India, 30 to 35% in Gujarat. In fact, the fact that in territories under the direct imperial administration, the zamindar's share of the surplus produced was much smaller than the appropriated in, in land revenue in confirmed by the study of the sale prices of the zamindaris of some villages set besides the land revenue paid by the same village. Uh, 
Anyone familiar with transactions in the modern real estate should be surprised to find that the price of a zamindari in Mughal times was seldom more than double, and in a few cases, only barely in excess of the land revenue demand of one year, although the price would should have been, capitali- been the capitalized value of the annual income expected from the possession of this right. Um, at the same time, already in Mughal India, the zamindari in itself, not the land under the zamindari, was had all the hallmark of an article of private property. It was inheritable and could be freely bought and sold. Hereditary succession of the zamindari was general law in the Mughal Empire. In contemporary records of sales or disputes, we often find one part one party of or another claiming a, a zamindari on the basis of hereditary possession as if this gave him the primary right. A deed of transfer contains a specific provision debarring any hairs of transfer from laying claim to the zamindari. In some sale deeds, the seller bind themselves to compensate the purchasers. If hairs presumably with greater claim to the zamindars than the sellers, um, appeared and proved their claim. It is not necessary that in any case, space would hardly permit us to cite the numerous cases known under records where sons or relations of the zamindars actually inherited his right. Of particular interest is the fact that the Hindu and Muslim laws of succession to property were fully applied, since both laws provided provide for the sons, inheriting equal share in the father's property. The zamindari was invariably divided among sons, a practice which is illustri- illustrated by some specific instances um, in, re- in documents uh, found afterwards. Moreover, the claim of female heirs, as prescribed under Hindu and Muslim laws, were also honored. And in, in records from Aud, uh, that's Uttar Pradesh, we actually find women, Hindu and Muslim, inheriting, selling, and otherwise disposing of zamindari or milkyat rights. So that is. The, with relations to the inheritance of zamindars, uh, we know that it became um, generation to generation, um, and this caused massive problems. Uh, it still does even today. And if you want to know why, uh, what proof it is, uh, you just know that uh, we see in the news recently uh, that there have been. Um, uh, families who were, you know, Nawabs um, and Maharajas who, uh, during the British time, uh, in order to keep their hereditary tracts of land and their money, uh, invested in British banks. And uh, 75 years after the uh, independence, they're still fighting for it. And the British courts are still uh, trying to sort out the inheritance of the heirs of the the, the Maharajas and the Nawabs um, from pre-colonial times in today's modern courts. And it's so stupid and so insulting. But uh, 75 years after independence, will still be fighting. Just tells you how much of fighting was going on back then. And back then, every zamindar had an army, a private army. So you can imagine the fight. All the zamindar was always divisible the def- definition of the rights of the heirs as fractional 
parts of the original Zamindari implies that some kind of recognition of its unity survived. In some cases, Zamindaris uh, divided up among their hairs as are described as mushtarik, that is, held in common. Uh, there is evidence that while the share of each hair in the Zamindari was recognized, the land was not actually divided and continued for some time at least to be regarded as the joint family holding. The income was uh, probably distributed among the hairs according to the size of their shares. Um, and there are many, many documents for this uh, recognition. If the Zamindari could be sold, it could also be transferred on the lease. One deed of lease, Ijara, sets down in details the amounts payable by the lessee for each of the two harvests in the year, for three years. Another allows these lessees to recover in installments any takvi loans given by him to the peasants and still outstanding at the time of surrendering surrendering the lease. It also stressed in two of our documents and uh, found that taking a zamindari on lease did not confer on the lessee any milkiat rights. Documents suggest that zamindari right might arise when a village was settled by a person who had its who had uh, its virgin land bought under cultivation by client peasantry. Or it might rise out of subversion of peasant right when uh, persons of superior non-peasant status impose their control over a village by buying out the rights of the peasants. But both these modes of creation of zamindari right in particular villages pre-purpose presupposes the previous existence of a zamindari class or at any rate, a class of persons with resources and power enough to settle and purchase the land. We must therefore consider how this class originated. 18th century texts recognize early that the origins of the class went back to the time that Muslim kings made their arrangement with particularly subjugated, subjugated subjects, uh, we can indeed trace the process by which the pre-sultanate rural put, uh, subjects were transformed into uh, zamindars by the 16th century under the increasing pressure that the conquering ruling class exerted on them. But one ought perhaps to be able to recognize the continued influence of the factors of caste and force which had earlier so greatly helped to mold the dominant class of the Indian feudalism. Now, I've talked about this before, caste. There was no caste in, uh, before the Portuguese came. The word caste is being used now to define uh, generations that existed and life that existed prior to the uh, Europeans coming to the Indian subcontinent. But it, in reality... There was no caste. The word caste did not exist. Caste is lineage, and this lineage only came from tribes, tribal. So there were always tribes and tribes of people, which is normal all over the world. In the Middle East, the, the Europe, Africa, there were tribes. These tribes have now become uh, became kingdoms, empires. In the modern world, we call them class or communities. Um, we just call them communities, but very much in India, they've kept to the caste because they have to degrade uh, the Indian subcontinent and the Hindus, who are non-Abrahamic uh, slaves, as they like to put it. Um, 
Tradition usually reveals a long process according to a set pattern. There is first a settlement of members of a, of a tribe or clan, perhaps dominating over peasants settled earlier or perhaps peasants themselves. Then other clans appear, drives out them out or establishes its dominion over them. And still another comes after them. At some stage, if not from the beginning, the dominion of victorious clans and tribes crystallizes into a zamindari rite held by various leading members of its or of the tribe or clan over different portions of the subjugated territory. What we can cert what we can be certain about is that such changes continue down to Mughal times and we have other sources besides tradition to tell us that they did not end over there. This summary of the typical traditional account of the establishment of the Zamindari rites make it obvious that these accounts treat the Zamindar class as consisting of a number of, of caste uh, tribes, clans, which monopolize Zam Zamindari holdings in different areas. With this association of Zamindari with caste, the testimony of the Ain Agbari is in full accord. Again, when they say caste, I'm, they are talking of tribes, okay? Um, all testimony of the Ain. Ain is the Aini Akbari, that is the uh, um, writings um, of the time of uh, Akbar. All of this, these references to the Zamindar class is supplemented by individual references also. So it's very important to know that. It's not just taken from the Ain by the author. Um, So the, um, the territorial division of Zamindari possession among clans and castes was a result of the way that the Zamindari right uh, had come into existence. It was historically created. One, one would be mis mistaking the, the nature of its creation if one supposed that it was system systematic. A clan might seize a piece of territory, might might not be able to entirely drive away the clan previously dominant, and some members of the latter might continue to hold their own in enclaves and corners. A still great irregularity would be introduced when the Zamindari right became a full-fledged article of property and also became subject to the sale and purchase, as it was and was throughout the Mughal times. The money might erode and the old caste bastions uh, open the gates to outsiders. Um, Uh, it's possible that the salubrity of the Zamindar sometimes enabled true outsiders to enter the ranks of that class. A few such groups uh, can be identified. First, there were members of families of nobility or Jagidars, an Afghan noble of Aranzib and descendants who established Zamindari Zamindaris, largely by purchase in uh, districts of Pali, uh, had initially obtained the district in permanent Jagir. Uh, lower offices in the imperial services, um, lower officers in the imperial services, similarly acquired zamindaris, uh, witnessed the dispute over the purchase of two biswas, um, and in the village of um, Shamsad, 
Shamsabad between two Afghans, one an imperial servant posted to the Suba of Bengal, another in the service of the imperial court. So we have these examples that exist, that outsiders came into these ranks. Uh, excluding the Afghans, such zamindari acquisitions by nobles and officers seem, however, to be being exceptional. More common were those made by revenue uh, grants, uh, guarantees, who invested their savings in the zamindari purchase. Evidence from um, of the Uttar Pradesh documents, such purchases by guarantees in both the 16th and 17th century can be noted. A universal element in the traditional accounts of, of the establishment of particular clans and Zamindar uh, tribes, caste, is the employment of armed forces, so that the possession of armed power seemed to have been a necessary attribute to the Zamindari rights. So, like I said, um, they were fighting and each to protect their land, to protect it from inheritors, uh, people who said they were inheritors from the imperial army, from tax collectors. And so they fought. Um, and they had... So, we're going to talk about that now. The troops of the Zamindars of the Empire, says the Ayn, exceeded 44 lakhs. An additional, an additional clause in the sentence, it tells us about the details of the forces have been provided elsewhere. The figures are interesting also for comp composition of the Zamindar troops in the Empire that they reveal. 384,558 cavalry, 4,207,057 infantry, 186,063 elephants, 4,263 guns, and 4,500 boats. Um, wow, that's a lot. The forts also um, were very visible symbols of armed power of the Zamindars. They served as strongholds, garrisons, houses, and bases. But their real power must have lain in the large numbers of these armed retainers. Since caste uh, had played a role in the formation of Zamindari right, it is reasonable to suppose that a Zamindar usually drew from his most loyal retainers from members of his own caste who had come and settled with him. That is the general practice uh, may be seen from the way in which writers belonging to the 17th century use the word ulus. The word came from the Mongols, from whom tribes and military contingents were not separate entities. In India, it was not applied to the divisions of the imperial army, but was used in the first place to signify zamindar caste. We, we hear the ulus of Kachvahas, Rathos, Gons, Baluch, etc. An official report from Ajmer province says that the Ulus of Saindal Rajputs held their Zamindari somewhere in Mevar. At the same time, that word bore the sense of a body of armed men from one clan or tribe, a person to be recognized as the Zamindar uh, in distributed territory and was generally expected to be in position of the Ulus. Um, Ulus as an U-L-U-S. Okay, I know it sounds weird. 
It seems probable that there is little hard evidence for it, uh, that the foot troopers of the Zamindars consist, uh, consisted largely of peasants or villagers impressed to serve the Zamindars in times of need. We do sometimes hear large bodies of Gangwas, villagers, used by Zamindars in their own local phrase or in resistance to the authorities. The way of the Zamindars paid the way the Zamindars paid their armed followers probably varied considerably. A Zamindar preparing to resist an attack uh, of the revenue collector's troops is shown as first drawing up the list of horsemen and foot soldiers, old and new, and of retainers paid by the grant of land or in cash. It is quite possible that Zamindars used, uh, usually gave up some of their lands to their fellow clansmen in return for their pledge to serve them, as was the case with the Rajputs in the territories of the autonomous chief. Whether the ordinary Gangwars called upon to defend the interests of the Zamindar received any pay or rendered their services in the form of uh, unpaid labor remains from um, remains from the limitations of a record an open question. So um, we see that the Zamindars also had their own private armies which fought against one another uh, for money and power, land, and there was constant fighting between them and so they had to form alliances with different people and that's how, my dear friends, the, the British came in. The... Um, the uh, land, the uh, Indian, the British East India Company came in. They had, they came into trade, which is also uh, the same part of feudalism. And they had their own private armies, and they allied, eventually allied with people on the ground, armies on the ground, and formed the bigger uh, conglomerate. Um, um, what can I say? Um, an alliance and finally took over more and more land and we got one third of the Indian subcontinent was theirs by the time 1857 came about and from when they collapsed it was the British uh, crown who inherited it. Uh, so um, yeah this is a very very important part and to note that these Zamindars had private armies. On the basis of the information assembled in this and the present in the previous section a few general remarks may be made on the position of Zamindars as a class. Theirs was in the first place an exploiting class in that they claimed the share of the surplus produce of the peasantry but uh, though this share varied from place to place it was on a whole a subordinate share compared with what was exhorted from the pres in peasants in the form of land revenue and other ceases and taxes in the name of the state. So this was not the only thing that they, they took from the peasants, but they took other um, revenue uh, in for the state, for the imperial uh, state that they belong to. Secondly, they represented in various ways elements of depotism of, of power, which was purely local. Their right over any particular land was hereditary, and though clan movements or sales might interfere with Zamindari possession, a Zamindar normally would have would have deep roots in the land belonging for generations to his family. His, his great advantage must have been his close knowledge of the productivity of the land and the customs and traditions of its inhabitants. Local associations, however, meant um, also meant uh, 
institutionalism and Zamindar association, and Zamindar's outlook was often narrowly bound by his caste affiliations. We also we have seen that the Zamindars as a class were really largely made up of a number of castes, which for a long being uprooting and subjugating of each other. Their social heterogeneity of the class must have increased till still further with the sale and purchase of zamindaris. Uh, besides this social division, there were territorial ones as well as shown in the beginning of the chapter. The uh, um, continuity of zamindari possession was broken all over by blocks of variety or pure peasant-held villages. So yeah, so once you have an army, you're definitely going to fight with each other to grab land and, and, and keep it as long as possible in your possession. And so the cycle of, of vendettas continued, and that's what we look at the violence today. The violence of today is an extension of the violence of our, of our currents, and these are the currents that formed our ways. So each Zamindar had um, tracts of land, villages and uh, it became their turf and you see the violence going on in states today and say oh well the Hindus against Muslims they're just turf wars it is a fallout of these Zamindari wars and Jagidar wars that existed in the subcontinent it, the, the currents are the same but the waves have, have changed or the labels have changed but it's the same mentality they are turf wars they are fighting for their turf and one day one will lose someone else will come and someone will lose and then the first one will come in and they're just tough wars going out in circle and circle and circle we don't understand this we cannot stop it it's like the the beach you go to the beach to the coven stop no will it continue carrying bringing garbage to the beach if you don't clean up the garbage that you throw in the sea of course so we need to offload the garbage that's in our minds understand where this came from and then if we don't understand we will not stop the violence of today uh, the strength and weakness of the Zamindar class was reflected in this type of armed power it commanded. The Zamindar's fort was a symbol of his determination to defend the land inherited from his ancestors. The peasants with their large numbers probably uh, never left him short of foot soldiers, four million infantry in no mean figure. The num numerically dominant infantry too accorded with the Zamindar's purely local ambitions and the absence of any great desire on his part for mobility or long-range operations. The Zamindari class was so fatally divided, so narrowly bound by his caste and local ties, though they were indeed in some respect its real strength and ensured its survival, that it could never form into a united governing class and create an empire. This incapacity of the part of the most um, powerful indigenous class may provide us with some, at least one ex explanation of why the main impetus towards empire building in medieval India came so repeatedly from foreign conquerors and immigrants. So the locals kept fighting, fighting, more and more in invaders came, uh, they allied with the locals, became part of the locals and fought, and then finally took over. Um, and, and you see, you see that, um, as you see that, 
uh, fighting in what we call Independence Day. Why do we have Independence Day? From who would we have independence? From from foreign invaders? But who are these invaders? Because the locals kept fighting and fighting. So anyone came for trade, came with their armies, their private armies. They allied with locals on the ground and fought and, 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 and agreed to do trade together, control the lands together until the next group came. And this, my dear friends, is the story of the Indian subcontinent. So what we're going on today did not start with Modi. It started a long time ago. Just for those who are listening and who think that everything is it belongs, everything that's wrong is the prime minister. Um, a person um, who was not a peasant was called. Now, who are these? Uh, we're going to go in some. Um, into some uh, definitions, yeah. A person who was not a peasant was called a zamindar when he possessed a particular right to the land, normally designated proprietary, Propri prop proprietary. Goodness, in our records, but uh, known by various names locally. The right was not often, in fact, proprietary. Propriety was distinguished by three essential features. It was superior to that of the peasant. It had originated independently of the existing imperial power, and it implied a claim to a share in the produce of the soil, which was distinct from though uh, it might be laid side by side with the land revenue demanded of the state. Uh, in addition, the right was usually accompanied by possession of an armed force, the instrument of establishing and reinforcing enforcing the right. The Zamindar um, in the imperial territories were held to be entirely subordinate to the administration, whose constant endeavor it was to convert him into a mere tax gatherer. But there were features which he had in common with men of great power, with the chiefs and kinglets, the so-called Rajas, Ranas, Raus, and Ravats. Like them, he held uh, some territory which he could call his own. Like them, he was no creature, uh, normally of imperial of the imperial government, uh, and like them, he had armed men to defend his possessions. Sometimes the lines between the two could not be rigidly drawn. We might find the person calling himself a raja, selling his right um, to a village like any other zamindar, and in the Dakkan, a deshmukh equivalent of the northern chowdhury could grow into a chief. While the descendants of the powerful chiefs might shrink to deshmukhs, uh, for imperial chancery anxious to depress the status of all subordinate rulers in the empire, the similarities were enough to suggest identity and the so and so the master of the large kingdom and a petty claimant to share the possession of a village could alike be designated zamindari or bumi. Uh, once the imperial government had exacted military service or money from the chiefs, it left them free to manage their internal affairs as they wished. For example, the complaints made to the court by the subjects of the chiefs are rare. They were free to levy uh, duties on trade passing through their territories at rates fixed by themselves. Their methods of revenue administration did not necessarily flow the regulations laid down by the imperial government. With the few exceptions noted, below, the Aini Agbari does not set out any revenue rates or measured area statistics for chief territories. Uh, so that, my friend, was a gist of the Zamindari system. It was serfdom with all its faults. Um, and there was 
there were turf wars. Okay, so each zamindar it was like a village. Um, no one one size uh, says all, but uh, there were plenty and plenty and plenty of turf wars. Uh, wars between the jagidars, um, and this caused a major problem. Uh, the 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 currents still form our waves today, and it's important to understand this. So I ask you to please research on your own. Uh, this is from a book called Irfan Hab uh, by Irfan Habab. Um, and the aggregate system of Mughal India, I would ask you to try and get it from a library or buy it because uh, it gives you an insight. Of course, you, there are many other books. Uh, I'm just taking one of this. There are many, many other books that you can you can see. But once you understand, you know that the currents have not stopped. This went on during the British. The British allied with the East India Company, allied with locals on the ground. And that is the reason why we have got um, the East India Company they came in and found power because they were supported by the locals. They didn't come from any ranks anywhere and just invaded. They were allied. They were supported by the locals and who were looking for um, help and assistance in, um, in, in, in claiming land. Um, yeah, basically in claiming land and um, maintaining it to the to the biggest of, uh, you know, the best of their, their authority. And that's why the British East India Company found a market. They found a market on the Indian subcontinent. Uh, people wanted to trade with them, people who were caught in the cycle of vendettas, people who were caught in the cycle of these clans and tribes who were just so, they just wanted to get out of the system of clans, tribal system, caste, um, um, what we call today as caste, these imperial armies, and they wanted to be independent and free-flowing metaphysical energy because the uh, British East India Company only came uh, to trade, and they were willing to trade with anyone. Since they didn't know anyone on the subcontinent, they were willing to trade with anyone, and pe they found the market. People traded with them because they didn't have to be part of a clan. They didn't have to go to a, a zamindar. Um, uh, and didn't have to have an army, and the the British were willing to trade with anyone. It's very much like an immigrant who comes today to a country, and he's willing to do any job, take anything that someone who's local will not do because they've been there for generations and they're just tired. So a new immigrant comes, he's, he's willing to do do any job, and as a result of which, he he's open to any idea and to start off afresh and then go and and rebuild his life, and that's what the British East India Company did, uh, and allied with the people on the ground and so we had a, a completely new set of uh, generation new people who came and and allied with the british and for four and 200 years later we had to fight for independence from them this is exactly what happened cycle after cycle it's not only with the british but with everyone in uh everyone in every case every empire every regime there's an up and down because we're currents and waves. So I'll leave you on that. Um, and I will uh, continue tomorrow. We will we will go on to uh, um, how the British took over India. I wouldn't say how, but um, in that line, we're still, we'll, 
go into the British and how um, we came about to finally fight for independence. So we'll do the independence series coming tomorrow and the after tomorrow. I thank you in the meanwhile for joining me. I hope you have a great day. Please do your research. Please speak to people, talk to at least five people, have that conversation, debate, and then afterwards um, you can go on from there. Uh, so thank you very much. Have yourself a great day and a great weekend.